Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 6. Though it was through circumstances beyond, mostly beyond my control, I feel like I need to apologize. From spirit-minded to Christ-like, part 2. You notice the part 2 there, and uh, for those of you that are not watching online and just have these things one listed sequentially right after another, uh, you'll notice that it's been a little while since we hit part one. Uh, it was uh, three, three, one, two, three Sundays ago um, that we did part one, and I did not intend by any means to have nearly a month between part one and part two. In fact, I was supposed to preach it the next Sunday morning, but we didn't have church that Sunday due to weather, and then we had Christmas, and so here we are. January 1st, and I'm preaching part two of the message from spirit-minded to Christ-like. Remember the week before that, uh, the last week of uh, November, I guess it was. Uh, no, I guess it was the first, the first uh, Sunday in December. I preached about spirit-mindedness and the privilege that we have to be spirit-minded. And we preached that from Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 26. And then in our second part of our message, we uh, talked about going from spirit-mindedness to Christ-likeness. And the first bit, we talked about being spirit-minded, and then we talked about the reality of Christ-likeness. The reality of Christ-likeness, that we can be Christ-like, that we are commanded to be Christ-like. In that, Jesus taught how. How to be Christ-like. So, spirit-mindedness, to have the mind of the Spirit, to trust the Spirit, then to become Christ-like. And Jesus said, this is how you do it. And we'll review that in just a moment. And this evening, Jesus is going to reason with us. He's going to rationalize with us. He takes the startling command, which He has just asked us, to follow, and then he zooms out that we might understand the bigger picture, to comprehend the very essence of these commands. Yes, we are called to do what we do on the basis of being a disciple of Christ. But what does that really mean? Well, today we learn of that. And as we are picking up very much within the context of what we talked about last time, we're really picking up in the middle of a context I would like for us to first read the passage that I preached several weeks ago and then briefly consider the applications that we made that week so that we can kind of get ourselves back up to speed with this rationalization that Jesus Christ will give us this week for these actions. And then we can grasp how it relates to what we learned last time we were in this passage. In chapter 6 of Luke, beginning in verse 27 through verse 38, we read this. Jesus speaking, He said in verse 27, But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And unto him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy good, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, Do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? 
For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. Judge not and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, and shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be meted, excuse me, measured to you again. That was the passage that we preached on last time we were in this text. That was the concept that Jesus Christ was teaching. Christ-likeness, this is how, this is what it means to be Christ-like. We go from having that spirit-mindedness of recognizing that this is what we want to do, of recognizing that the spirit is more important than the, than the material, that we pursue the spiritual, even at the expense of the material, even at the expense of what our senses see. We pursue that of which the spirit teaches. And then he says, how do we do that? Well, we just read how we do that. We love our enemies. We're kind to those that hate us. We, we do good to them. We pray for them. We are are thankful. We are merciful. We judge not. We condemn not. We forgive. We give with all of our hearts. And as we do so, we find Christ-likeness. That's the how. And we made these points last time we were together. First, be Christ-like in love. Yield your rights to God's authority to avenge. Second, be Christ-like in generosity. Yield your right to things. Third, love your enemies. Love the household of faith even more. And fourth, free yourself from the responsibility and arrogance of judgment and condemnation. And here we are, having been called to love and to give and not to judge. We've been called to do so because in doing so, we are different. We're exhibiting God tendencies, Christ-likeness, rather than the tendencies of man. Now, as we pick up in our text today, Jesus will continue. And he's going to begin to rationalize, reason with us as to why this is what we want, why this is what we ought to pursue. And he says this in verse 39. And he spake a parable unto them. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? Can you see the connection between Jesus' parable here? Just this brief parable about the blind leading the blind and the warning against judging as we defined it last time we were together? Can you see how you and I as fallible human beings laden with our own sin nature, our own problems, fail to meet the standard for judging someone else? Can we, as those who have our own blind spots, truly lead the blind out of their own pit on our moral judgment alone? Now, this is part two. I'm preaching on the assumption that you are here and you remember part one. But let me remind you that this does not mean that you cannot call sin, sin. It does not mean that we have no moral basis to help other men out of their moral problems. In fact, we are commanded to help men out of their moral problems. We'll talk about that toward the end of the the sermon. The warning here, the problem here is not about calling sin, sin. It's not about saying to somebody, this is sin and I want to help you get out of the sin. That is not what Jesus is preaching against here. It is about any man claiming a moral superiority over another man and so becoming his personal judge, his personal moral arbiter, 
the mortal arbiter of a man's actions and intentions. For him to stand over a man and to say, I think this and therefore you should be, think or do that. Even as a sinful man myself, I can say you shouldn't lie. I can say you shouldn't steal. If a man lies, I can say that is wrong. That's not judging him. If he's lying, he's lying. If he steals something, I can say you should not do that. That is wrong. That is not judgment. I can say you should not lust because the Bible says you should not lust. In doing so, I am not calling men to conform to my standard. I am not judging men based upon me or my actions or what I think think is right and wrong, I am appealing to a higher standard. And that's the difference. Appealing to me versus appealing to God. Appealing to tradition versus appealing to God. Appealing to uh, those who have gone before, some authority, uh, uh, human authority, or appealing to God. I am informing a man when he is doing wrong regarding God's standard of morality and calling them unto God's ethic. If I do that, I'm fine. If I, conform, if I call men to conform to my morality or my personal ethic, I'm offending what Jesus is saying here. And in the parable here, the blind man is not a man of righteousness calling others unto God. The blind man is the hypocrite who is calling others unto a definition of morality and his ethic that he's not even keeping himself. Calling others to conform to his standard of what he believes is right in hypocrisy toward his own spirit. The man who thinks of himself so highly that he feels like he can stand over other men and judge them at the expense of ever judging himself. That he paints himself as something above others, above the pettiness, and then he looks down on others and calls them to follow his standard, to conform to his ideals. He's a blind man, and he's leading other men into blindness. And none of us has the moral justification or ability to lead others unto God. Because as Isaiah 53, 6 says, and we memorized last month, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We all have a blindness within us called sin. And so it is not I who leads men unto righteousness, but rather God's word, the light of God's word. I can be the messenger. I can be the tool that God uses. I can be the moon reflecting the sun of God to others, but I can never be the Son. The problem that Jesus Christ was trying to pinpoint here was men who thought they were the Son, who thought they were the light, who thought they were right with God by their own moral reckoning and their own moral standing, and then were seeking and demanding really that others conform to their moral reckoning and their moral standing in order for those men to be righteous, which is them being blind to their own sin and rather highlighting what they felt they did right, and then calling others, ignoring any sin, except for the ones whereby men could conform to their ethic. God spare us from thinking that we have something to offer this world other than simply to point them to the truths of the inspired Word of God. God spare us from thinking there is anything in us Anything good, anything worthwhile that is not directly related and pointing back to that which God has done or that which God is. As Jesus spoke this on that day, his words would ask, Can the scribes and Pharisees 
by assuming a false moral superiority, by ignoring certain parts of the law and focusing on others, and then saying these parts of the law is what matters, and then calling others only unto what they felt was necessary and right, can they in that state really adequately pull others from the path to hell, pull others into righteousness? Well, indeed they cannot, for they are just as blind because they have missed it. They have missed the morality of God, the ethic of God. They have missed God's standard because they've erected their own. And that's the warning. That's what this judge not lest you be judged is about. Condemn not lest you be condemned. That's what that's about. We don't condemn anyone. We can't condemn anyone. We don't have the authority to condemn anyone. We don't have the authority to judge people on our standard, to judge people on our ethic. The best we can do and what we are called to do is point them to the great judge and allow him to judge. But we can go back even deeper into the context. Can you or I, by following the same spirit of the world, a spirit which only loves those who love us, a spirit which only lends to those of whom we expect to get back, a spirit which is only good to those who are good to us, can we having that spirit really lead others out of the blindness of their own lives? Can we, by conforming ourselves to the same standard of the world, really think that we're calling anyone out of the world? Can we as God's people, when we gossip about others, when we bicker, when we argue, when we have our little cliques, when we get into our little groups and we do everything that the Bible tells us not to do, can we really say that then we are positioned properly to lead others out of their own moral failings? To lead others out of their own problems? Much to the contrary. Jesus says this in verse 40. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. This is very important. The disciple is not greater than his master. Neither you nor I can improve on the system which God has created. Neither you nor I can assume that if we forge a path different from the one which Jesus trod, that we can expect a better result in the eyes of God than what Jesus taught. You don't have to believe that Jesus... What, what, you don't have to believe what Jesus is teaching here, excuse me. You don't have to invest in this lifestyle of faith which sets aside all expectation of human nature and pursues the ideals of the heavenly. But if you do refuse this teaching, these ideals, just don't fool yourself into thinking that you have found a better way than God's way. And this is what the scribes had done. This is how they became blind leaders of the blind. This is how they became those judges that Jesus said, judge not. This is how they became the condemners that Jesus said, condemn not. It was not because they were upholding the word of God and pointing others to the truths and allowing the truths of God to judge the hearts of men. It was because they had lifted themselves up and said, we have a way that we think is best. We have a system. And they had created a system. They had erected a system a series of traditions through which they had convinced themselves that they'd figured out the formula for pleasing God. And they, in, in the flesh, fulfilled this formula and said, now I'm right with God, even though their hearts were so far from Him. They erected rules and regulations and demanded that all who say they love God follow them and mercilessly judged anyone who did not live up to their standard. And in doing so, they 
blinded by their own self-righteousness, stood in their metaphorical ivory towers, attempting to lead others out of their darkness and into the light. But they were leading others out of their darkness into a different darkness. Blind leaders of the blind. And can the blind lead the blind except that they will both fall into a pit? But the perfect man. In the word, in the Bibles, that word perfect does not mean sinless. We talked about this morning. But rather complete. Finished and complete. Having all that is necessary to our nature and kind. The perfect man is not the man who has attained the height of human perception and domination over his culture so that he has cowed everyone around him into moral cloning of himself. The perfect man is not the man who has gone out on his own and successfully created a system whereby he can judge himself and others. The perfect man is the man who has become most like his master. The perfect man is the man who has become most Christ-like. And what is Christ-likeness? That's what we talked about last time in part one. Love your enemies. Do good to them that hurt you. Pray for them that would despitefully use you. Be good. Be kind. Be merciful. Be loving. Be forgiving. That is Christ. The perfect man is not the man who comes to church every week with a suit and tie on. The perfect man is not the man who's thrown away his TV. The perfect man is not the man who lives this super high moral code. Those aren't necessarily bad things. But the perfect man is the man who is most like Christ. You cannot be better than when you look like the Master. The disciple is no better than his Master. He is not above his Master Everyone that is perfect is as his master. That is perfection. And as we learned in verses 35 and 36, our God is kind even to the unthankful. He is merciful to all. And so let us reason together. Rationalize with me this evening. How is it that you can be perfect? That you can find success? That you can be what pleases God? How is it that we can be most spiritually successful. It's not through a rigid set of moral standards by which we judge ourselves and others. Though moral standards are not bad. Please don't get me wrong. Please don't take me out of context. Please don't miss it. Standards are not bad. Morality is important. Standards are important. I've preached on that too. But what makes us what God wants us to be is when we reflect the character of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so Jesus illustrates in verses 41 and 42. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. Jesus is speaking directly against a religiosity, a method of religion that the scribes and the Pharisees had become a part of, that we have seen in every generation all the way through till today, where they lived in complete rejection of the principles of God, 
while seeking to uphold some standard of morality that they had themselves defined it. Defined, excuse me. Things such as loving thy neighbor, don't worry about that. Giving to the needs of others, no, they didn't worry about that. And yet they had such a strict moral code. Simultaneously treating others negatively on the basis of their offenses against the traditions of the elders. They had erected this moral code, and this moral code was not a moral code that reflected God. It was a moral code that reflected a false God. The image that they had erected that they called God. Their own understanding. Whether we want to call that God tradition, or whether we want to call that God the very law of Moses itself, Whatever we want to call it, they were serving a false god in the name of God, erected around the standards that God had set up in the Old Testament for them. Then they walked around in their world, classifying others on the basis of their fallible system of judgment, so that a rich man was inherently a godly man, not because of what he did or didn't do, but simply because he was rich, and that must mean God was blessing him. So that the poor man, or the sick man, the man who had a terminal illness, or the man who had no money, must have by nature been an ungodly man, not because of what he did or didn't do, not because of his actions or his heart, but simply because he didn't have money, or simply because he got sick. They were judged on that basis. The widow and the fatherless were neglected as outcasts of society, even though God said pure religion and undefiled is to, to, to minister to the fatherless and the widows, even though God had commanded them all throughout the Old Testament to minister to the fathers and widows, they said if you're fatherless or if you're a widow, there's a problem with you because you failed to live up to our standard, not God's standard, but the standard of self-righteous moralization that they lived under. The offenses of the multitudes were minor. Yet all the while, the offenses of the scribes and the Pharisees were great. But they could not see it because they were so caught up in the offenses of others that they could not see their own. And this is what we call hypocrisy. Saying one thing while doing the opposite. Judging others for their sins while ignoring your own. And this is why Jesus warned us against judging others. Or condemning others. For indeed, we are all worthy of judgment, aren't we? We are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus says, if you want to see clearly enough to pull the moat, a moat would be like a little splinter. If you want to see clearly enough to pull the moat out of your brother's eye, and notice Jesus doesn't say ignore the moat in your brother's eye. Pretend like the moat doesn't exist. Don't pretend like sin doesn't exist. That's not being non-judgmental. That's not being non-condemning. It's not hypocritical for me as a sinner who has my own problems to stand up here and say, this is sin, whether I'm doing it or not. It is hypocritical if I say to you, what you're doing is sin, but what I'm doing, even though it's wrong, is okay. Because I don't think this is as big as that. Jesus said, if you want to see clearly enough to pull the moat out of thy brother's eyes, first get the beam out of your own. Yes, it's our privilege as followers of the true and living God to live a life where iron sharpens iron, to hold one another accountable, to help each other out of our sin, to state that sin is sin. He's not saying, Jesus is not saying we can't. And indeed, he's not saying that we should not. What he is warning about is the danger of looking at others 
seeing those things which we perceive to be offenses by our own judgment and as a way of ignoring our own sin, tirelessly devoting ourselves to shaming and guilting men out of those actions which we deem wrong. This is the man who goes about constantly berating the sodomite, constantly tearing people down who are dead in their trespasses and sins for doing the very thing that their nature inclines them unto, which is sin, while simultaneously ignoring his own adultery or lies or gossip or gluttony. It's the man who ignores his problems so that he can simply look at the problems of others. It's a man who, if I may put it in a better way, it's a man who looks at the problem of problems of others so that he can ignore his own problems. So that he can feel a moral superiority that dulls his conscience against his own downfalls, against his own problems, against his own moral failings, against his own needs. And if you or I use the sins of others as a personal anesthetic to conviction for our own sin... In other words, if you or I use our judgment, use looking at other sins in order to make us feel better about our own so we don't have to think about our own problems, well, then we're blind leaders of, blind, of the blind. We're harming the testimony of Christ while simultaneously cheating ourselves out of the most precious, one of the most precious and necessary gifts which the Lord has ever given us as believers, that being the power of conviction through the Holy Spirit. We'll hit more cross-references in our application in regard to this concept. But while we are here, I'd like us to read just one particular passage because it's so applicable. It's so important. As a matter of fact, so important that I would encourage you perhaps this week to take Luke 6, verses 27 to 49, and to read it next to this passage. Read one, then read the other. Then read one, then read the other to see how they correlate. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 18. And in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 12 to 18, the Bible says this. For we dare not make ourselves of the number, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves, and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reached not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's lines of things made ready to our hand. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. When we compare ourselves among ourselves, the Word of God says that we are being unwise. And this is what the the scribes and Pharisees were doing. This is what it means to not judge lest we be judged. This is what it means to not condemn lest lest we be condemned. 
when we pass judgment on others based upon our perception of morality, based upon our standard, based upon what we think, when we compare ourselves to others and we say, well, I'm doing okay because I'm not as bad as that person, what we're doing is we're saying that somehow we are passing judgment that that person is worse than we are. How dare we? How dare we? How dare I pardon my own sin by looking at someone whose sins we perceive as worse and saying, well, at least I'm not that person. At least I'm not as bad as them. And so I feel better about me because I'm not as bad as them. That's what Jesus means when he says, judge not lest you be judged. That's what Jesus means when he says, condemn not lest you be condemned. That's what Jesus means when he says, can the blind lead the blind and they not fall into a ditch. That's what Jesus means when he says, take first out the moat out of thine own eye and then thou shalt see clearly to pull out, excuse me, the beam out of thine own eye and then thou shalt see clearly to pull the moat out of thy brother's eye. We can't boast in our own measure of success and righteousness. The standard of your righteousness and obedience to God is not whether or not you do more moral things than your neighbor or than others in the church or than your pastor. Well, pastor watched that movie, so I can too. Well, pastor does this, so I'm not, I must be doing okay. Well, pastor is this, so I must be okay. Well, pastor thinks that. Well, my neighbor is this way, and at least I'm not like that. Well, my neighbor thinks this way, and at least I don't think that way. I must be doing okay. No, your standard is not your neighbor. Your standard is not your church. Your standard is not your pastor. Your standard is this. And if you're judging yourself or others by anything other than this, that's false judgment. The only measure that matters at all is the measure which God has given unto us. And that measure is himself as reflected in the word of God. When we stretch beyond this and judge by other measures... Synthetic measures erected in our own minds, our own churches, our own uh, religious groups. When we boast in these measures, when we judge by these measures, we set ourselves up for the very failure that Jesus is warning about in Luke 6. That we become blind leaders of the blind. We lead in hypocritical judgmentalism rather than in sincerity and truth. But if the gospel is our standard, the standard of all things, then everything changes, doesn't it? If our only glory is in the Lord and in His righteousness, then the standard by which we see the world will rest on Christ's righteousness and we can thus judge righteous judgments. We won't hate the world for their sin. And this is, this is the, the, the get, get this please, get this. If we are judging by the gospel, if we are judging in Christ's judgment, if we are judging righteous judgments, you will not hate the world for their sin. You will not ignore the world in their sin either. You will not hate the world for their sin. You will not ignore the world in their sin. Instead, you will weep for their sin. You will love them all the more for their for the deep desperation of their need and you will long for them to come to the knowledge of the truth. You will ache for them to come to the knowledge of the truth. The sinner will not repulse you. The sinner will not repel you. You will be drawn to the sinner. You will weep for the sinner. You will ache for the sinner. You will love the sinner. You will not judge the sinner. You will not look at the sinner and see it as a means by which for you to feel better about yourself. You will look at the sinner and you will ache for their soul. And yes, you will thank God that He has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. But you will love the sinner. You won't hate the sinner. You will love the world. You will not hate the world. 
You will not ignore their sin. Likewise, we won't hate the brethren for their shortcomings. We won't shame them for their faults. We won't create an atmosphere where people feel like they can't come to church and tell people how they're doing or, how, or, or their problems or their needs or their downfalls or their failings. We will weep for them. We will love them all the more. And we will be determined to help them out of their shortcomings as fellow heirs to this grace of life. That's what this mindset, that's what a love and a loyalty to the gospel will do. And all the while, our only glory will be when men and women, or when we ourselves, are found in obedience to the Word of God. For this is what the Lord commends. And it is in those of whom the Lord is pleased. And so our glory will not be in what we do or don't do. Our glory will not be in how we feel we did this week. Our glory will not be in how much better we are than anyone else. Our glory will not be in how our things are turning out and others are not. Our glory will be in this and this alone, that we have done things that the Bible says the Lord is pleased with. And that means that we are not approved of ourselves. We are approved of the Lord. And so we're content. We continue in verses 43 and 44 because we simply must. Jesus says, For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. Jesus spoke to these men and women. The self-righteous among them would be saying something to this effect. Jesus doesn't understand. Yes, I may have a few problems of my own, but I'm really a good person. Look at these people. Look at these publicans and sinners that he's sitting with. Does he even know? Does he even have any clue what they're like? And here he's lecturing me about not judging. I'm a flawed, good person, but they're really bad people. And to this, Jesus answers the statement of their hearts with a principle. And the essence of this principle is simply this. What comes out of you is what is inside of you. The fruit which you bear is the result of who you are. And let me state this, and we'll, we'll talk about this again. When I say what comes out of you, that's not just what actually gets out. What bubbles up to the surface. What you think but don't say, that's still in you. That's still coming out of you. That's still there. The first thing that comes to your mind that you would never say because that would be rude and horrible and not Christian, it still came to your mind. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Sin doesn't just come from nowhere any more than righteousness comes from nowhere. When sin comes out of you, it's because there's something corrupt deeper down. The test of your godliness is not found in your knowledge or in your words. The test of your godliness is in your actions. It's in, it's in the essence of what you actually think and how those thoughts bring about actions. It's not even just actions. It's the essence of what you think. It's the essence of what you are. It's your disposition. Your fruit is the only gauge that you have to understand what you truly are. See, because you can know everything in the world and still produce bad fruit. You can know all the Bible 
but not believe a lick of it. You can know all the Word of God, but it cannot change you, and you can still bear bad fruit. And you say, well, that bad fruit's coming from a good tree. No, it's not. You, you might be a tree full of knowledge, but you're not a good tree if you're not bearing ripe fruit. Who you are is evidenced in what you are. And this is a difficult concept for any of us to comprehend. You know, every week I go to the jail and I sit across from people, many of whom are engaged in all manner of vile wickedness, but who will attest to me that they're really good people. And they say things to the effect of, oh, well, that's not really me. The person I am when I'm on drugs, that's not really me. Being a drug addict, that's not really me. Uh, beating my wife, that's not really me. Um, these things that I'm in jail for, that's not the real me. And see, what they're saying is that there's a part of them that they know that wants to do right and that they feel like that's the real them and the part that's doing things and thinking things is not them, but that's not how it works, is it? They're in jail because that is them. They're in jail because that is them. You are who you are. If you lie, you're a liar. You can say, well, yes, I lie, but that's not really who I am, but that's not true. All you're saying is that you are an apple tree producing oranges, and we all know that that's preposterous. You can steal and say, yes, I steal, but I'm not a thief. But all you're saying is you're a tree that produces coconuts, even though you're a pear tree, and that doesn't make any sense. The only person you're fooling is yourself, and that means you're blind. And if you try to lead others, you're a blind man leading the blind, and you're both at risk of falling into the ditch. Men do not gather figs from thorn bushes. Men do not gather grapes from brambles. We'll talk about that more. In our application, continue in verse 45. Jesus says, A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A man of purity, who is living in spirit-mindedness and assuming Christ-likeness, though certainly not a perfect man, will, as he abides in the vine that it is Christ, bring forth that which is good. Not just in his actions, but in the thoughts that compel his actions. I can be an er, a, a dirty man, an evil man, and stop just short of actually doing all the vile things that I think and, and, and imagine in my mind. That doesn't make me any cleaner, does it? doesn't make me any cleaner, just because I don't do it. An evil man, out of the evil treasure of his own heart, as he abides either in the world, the flesh, or the devil, will bring forth that which is evil. You can't cheat the system, for out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaketh. What comes out of you is a reflection of what is in you. And for some of us today, this should be a wake-up call. A sobering reminder that we are not what we think we are, perhaps not where we want to be. Because who we are speaks for what we are. And what we are speaks for who we are. The fruit of our life speaks against us, even when our own mind seeks to convince us that we're doing okay. Listen to the words of Jesus here. He calls for each of us to examine the fruit of our life to determine where we are, where we abide. If the things that come out of our life if the things that bounce around in our mind, if the things that consume us are lusts and envies and selfishness and lies and gossip and theft and immorality and covetousness, it's because that is what your heart is. 
and there's something terribly, terribly wrong with your spiritual life. We can't have it both ways. We can't be sure of our own righteousness while out of us is flowing evil. We can't say that we are really a a good person that pleases the Lord when the fruit of our lives is anything but right. And Jesus in his final statement of this teaching says as much, which we'll read in verses 46 to 49. He gives an illustration. He says this, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Did you catch the statement in verse 46? And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Can we really call Jesus our Lord if we're not obeying Him? Can we really call Jesus our Lord and Master if we're not doing the things that He says? Jesus simply is hes rationalizing. He's reasoning with us here. He says the one that hears is not the one who is blessed, but the one that hears and does. If we aren't loving our enemies and doing good to them that hate us and bless them that curse us and pray for them which would use us, are we really, is Jesus really our Lord? If we aren't forgiving others in a manner as Christ has forgiven us, then is Jesus really our Lord? If we haven't yielded our rights on the altar of God's divine character and His purposes, is Jesus really our Lord? Because these things are the things that He has commanded us to do. This is the very essence of what it means to be Christ-like, and we're not above our Master. It is enough that we are as our Master. And if He has commanded us to do them, then He expects us to do them. And He never gives us a command which He does not enable us to fulfill. He doesn't tell us to do things and then laugh as we can't do them. He tells us to do things because He expects us to do them and He expects us to do them because He's enabled us through His Spirit to do them. And if that is indeed the case, then if we're not doing them, then is Jesus really our Lord? And He gives this illustration, this illustration of spirit-mindedness giving way to Christ-likeness. This illustration of the wise man and the foolish man. And in doing so, we come full circle as Jesus calls His disciples to think spiritually, not physically. Each of us needs to choose whether or not we believe this stuff. In fact, two messages ago in Luke 6, verses 1 to 26, that was one of our points, right? Do you really believe this stuff? Jesus says that those who come to Him and hear Him and obey Him, He is like a man who builds his house by digging a deep foundation and laying the foundation of his house upon a rock. And the house is stable and it's strong and it's firm. And when the trials of life come, that house is not going to fall down because the foundation of that house is true. It is immovable. It is a foundation of rock. So that when when things come, the storm beats upon it, but the house doesn't fall. 
That's what happens if you hear and obey. But see, there's a lot of hearers. There's a lot of hearers in our churches today. There's a lot of people in a lot of churches who know a lot of stuff. And I'm using a lot in a wrong sense. My apologies for that. A lot is what you build a house on. (laughs) They know a great deal of stuff. They do. They know what the Bible says. They can outline the books of the Bible. They can tell you all sorts of stuff about it. They can tell you who Moses was, who Joseph was, who Potiphar was. They can go through all of the people. They can go through the judges. They can go through the kings. They can tell you the themes. They can work it all out for you. They can tell you what salvation is. They can tell you what these doctrines mean. They can define all of these theo- the, uh, theological terms. They can give you the, the deep terms. They can give you the scholar's terms. They can express to you what the scholar's terms mean. And they can have it all in there. And they can hear it all but they haven't obeyed it. And Jesus says, the man who's heard it all, but hasn't obeyed it, like the scribe, like the Pharisee, the scribes and the Pharisees, you know those people that had memorized the entire first five books of the Old Testament? Could you imagine memorizing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? The men that had done that, Jesus said, you've heard it, But let me tell you what it's like for a man that hears and doesn't obey. The man who hears and doesn't obey is the man whose house is built without foundation. A man whose house is built on the sand. He's built up a house, but when the weather comes and the stream beats against it vehemently, it falls immediately and the ruin is great because there's no foundation the foundation of obedience. Every man has the choice when he hears the teachings of Christ to obey or to disobey, to accept or to reject. Every man has the choice of not yielding your rights because you want those rights to yourself. Every one of you has the choice to not yield your things because you want those things of not giving, of not forgiving, of not loving your enemies, of judging, of condemning. This is your choice. Some of our young people are at that crossroads in this church right now. You're deciding whether or not you're going to serve the Lord or yourself. You're going to go God's way or your way. You're going to listen to your authorities or cast them off. You're going to submit or you're going to rebel. And you're ready to make that choice. You are at those crossroads. And those of you who have sat under my preaching have heard what God has said. You know what God wants of you. You know what the Bible says is right. But it's still 100% up to you to decide which way you're going to go. And if you're wise, you will sell out to the teachings of Christ. If you're wise, you will build your foundation upon the rock. And that rock is Christ. And you will rest yourself on that foundation and you will build upon it. And when the storms of life come, you will be strong and you will endure. But then there's some of you who have heard it all. And like the scribe and like the Pharisee and like the Sadducee, you know it, but you don't obey it. Because Jesus is not Lord. You may be saved. You may have understood salvation. You may be saved yet so as by fire. But Jesus is not everything to you He should be. You haven't died to self. You haven't yielded fully to Him. And when the storm comes, 
there will be no foundation. And the ruin of that house is great. Several applications as we close. First, our master is perfect. And so we are perfected in Christ-likeness. You cannot improve upon God's system. You cannot do better than being like Christ. This path which Jesus has asked you to trod, a path of yielding yourself at whatever cost, this path of leaving all to follow Christ, this path of placing yourself at a physical disadvantage for the sake of the spiritual blessing and reward, all of those things we talked about in part one of this message, all of those really hard teachings about loving your enemy and about giving and about mercy and about forgiveness and all of those things which none of us really want to do and those aren't the things we want to hinge our Christian life upon because they're the hard stuff. We want to hinge our Christian life upon the easy stuff, the stuff that we can do in our flesh, all of those things, you can't improve upon that. That is what it means to follow Christ. There is not, and indeed there cannot be, a better way because this way is forged by the very Creator of all things. Christ-likeness is the essence of righteousness. It is our greatest aspiration. And so Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3-8, through eight, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Did you hear what Paul told you there? Let each esteem other better than himself. Take upon yourself no reputation. Become the servant of other men. Humble yourself before the will of God. Christ-likeness. This is the pinnacle of true living. All the way unto death. All the way unto death. It is perfection. And you can't improve upon it. Our moral standards cannot improve upon God's. Our methods of convicting, of manipulating, of expecting things out of people cannot improve upon God's. Jesus is calling for His disciples here to reject a system of tradition and legalism whereby the standard for righteousness was measured by the words, perceptions, and expectations of fallible men and rather to live our lives under the measure of the perfection of Christ-likeness. To assume a spirit-mindedness which rejects the notion that we are okay just because we look okay or act okay doesn't work. It's interesting. I listen to several political commentators. And one of the ones I listen to regularly is an Orthodox Jew. And there are many conservative political commentators who are Orthodox Jews. He's a man of wisdom, and he loves the Torah, and he knows it very well. And he's a very intelligent man, and he understands the New Testament as well. And I was listening to him quite some time ago now, uh, a couple of, I guess probably a month and a half, two months ago now, and he was describing his view of the sin of sodomy. And he stated something which I found fascinating. He gave verses in both the Old Testament and the New Testament which clearly state that sodomy is an evil. 
And he stated without reservation that the act of sodomy is wrong. But he stated this, and this was interesting to me. He stated the Bible doesn't necessarily call sodomy a sin, but rather the act of sodomy. And he drew the differentiation along the lines of whether a person actually acts out his desires. And he said this, he said the Bible is a book with, that the Bible is not a book which polices thoughts or desires, it is a book which polices actions. Now think about that with me for a moment. The Bible polices actions, not thoughts or desires. Does that sound very Jewish to you? What I mean is this. Jesus came to the Jews, to the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he came in Matthew 5 and he said this to them. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. This political commentator who's a conservative Orthodox Jew said the exact same thing the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were saying in Jesus' day. The Bible doesn't police thought, only action. So if I act a certain way, that means I'm right with God. And Jesus came and said, wrong. The way you think is just as important as the way you act. What is in your heart is just as important as, what com- as, as, as how it works itself out in your actions. If you look after that woman to lust after her in your heart, you are an adulterer already. Isn't that fascinating that the, that the Orthodox Jew is fighting the same battle, has the exact same mindset today that Jesus 2,000 years ago came to correct? If all of and now now granted, if all of society conformed itself to the moral norms, regardless of what they thought, if they did what what was decent, we'd have a pretty good society, wouldn't we? Just like the Jews had a pretty good society of the day. But a good society wasn't enough to make them right with God. Jesus explicitly targets this concept, this misinterpretation of the Torah that says that it only cares about actions, not thoughts or desires. And he specifically says, if the lust is only in your heart, you've still fallen short of God's perfection, God's glory. Spirit-mindedness rejects the premise that you're okay with God if you conform to some outward standard of morality. Spirit-mindedness compels us to see things eternally, through eternal eyes, through spiritual eyes, and understand that if we do so, our mind will be corrected and then our actions will please God. Start with the Spirit, then it will renew our mind which will change our actions. Don't allow your spirit to be a mess and your mind to be a mess and then just try to put a gate at the front of your mind to keep it from coming out in your actions. That's called hypocrisy. We can't improve on Christ's system. The disciple is not above his master. So what does that mean for us? Well, our second point. Refuse hypocritical judgments. Rest in God's judgments, lest you undermine your testimony and lose out on ministry. As those who call themselves Christians, nothing will damage your testimony or undermine your ability to minister to others faster 
than hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is saying one thing but doing the opposite. Living one way while claiming to live another. Saying one thing, thinking another. The hypocrite loses all credibility with others. Jesus called the leaders of his nation hypocrites because they were attempting to lead the nation into a standard of moral purity while ignoring the essence of Old Testament commandments. Their hearts were a wreck. They were ignoring the weightier matters of the law. And yet somehow they were seeking to lead their people into this concept of moral purity. They rejected anyone they deemed as a sinner until such time as that person showed themselves no longer a sinner by their Flawed standard. They paraded themselves around, competent in their own righteousness, condemning all others for their unrighteousness, while completely ignoring many aspects of the law of which they fell short themselves, and completely ignoring the fact that their hearts were still guilty before God. And this is hypocrisy. And it will deeply undermine our testimony among the lost, but also among fellow followers of Christ, also among our children. Consider what Paul wrote to the Jews in Rome in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 24. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest that a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest you should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorst idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. The name of God is blasphemed when we live hypocritical lives. When we say one thing but do the opposite. The name of God is blasphemed when we hold others to a hypocritical condemnation that ignores our own sinfulness. The name of God is blasphemed as we tell the world lost in sin that their sin is an abomination while we pretend to be without sin but really live in sin and indulge that sin in the same way. When we tell the sodomite to reject their sinful ways, but indulge in pornography ourselves. When we tell Hollywood to clean up their act while simultaneously indulging in the very trash that we say marks its destitution. A hypocritical life blasphemes the name of God, undermines our testimony, and can cause us to lose ministry. And by the way, it's absolutely not necessary. Who among us is without sin? Is there any among us who honestly thinks someone among us does not struggle with sin? Do you honestly think your pastor does not struggle with sin? Or your pastor's wife? Do you honestly think the person sitting next to you does not struggle with sin? We present ourselves among this group. Christians have this amazing ability to present themselves as pretty disinfected, don't we? And in doing so, we kind of do ourselves a disservice. We hide our struggles from the very people that are called to love us in spite of our struggles. The very people who are to love us in spite, who are to help us through them. The very people who would desire to love you and pray for you and hold you accountable and pull you up. And yet we hide our struggles from them because we think if they know that we're a sinner, somehow they won't think we're godly anymore. Somehow we'll be lower esteemed in their eyes. And you know what? What if we were? 
Would that be such a bad thing? Would that be such a bad thing if we had the reputation of being the one who struggles with sin? Don't we? Now, we don't need to air our dirty laundry. We, don't, we certainly should not be proud of our sin. We should not be content to live in our sin. But look, none among us is without sin. So why do we need to pretend that we are? Why do we need to have false pretenses, disinfect ourselves among this group of people? I mean, does not Paul command us in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2? Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Are we so afraid of being one of those who is overtaken, instead of being one who is spiritual, that when we are overtaken, we're afraid to tell anyone? And so we don't get restored? And so we can't grow and move on in our Christian life? Now, we don't want to be among those who have been overtaken in a fault. But is it so important that we would live hypocritical lives in order not for it not to be seen? Is this not what the wise King Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 10? Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. But what do we do instead? We arrive on Sunday disinfected. We don't share our burdens. We don't share our our problems. We don't seek accountability. We don't ask for help because the culture of the church is a disinfected culture. But what does that really encourage other than hypocrisy? And what does hypocrisy do other than undermine testimony and deny ministry? How can the church help you? How can the church help me if we don't let the church in? And why would anyone let the church in if all we're going to do when when we let the church in is be judged or condemned or rejected or looked down upon for the very things that everyone else is struggling with also? And so the church stagnates and this culture of hypocrisy grows and the loss is great. Refuse hypocrisy, brethren, in all of its forms, either to judge or or to live. But if we will judge ourselves, the Bible says we should not be judged. So while we purpose not to compare ourselves among ourselves to hypocritically judge others, we also understand from the scriptures, namely 1 Corinthians 11 verse 31, that if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged of God. That if we correct ourselves, then we don't have to be chastened of the Lord. If you judge yourself, if you search your own heart, find where you stand, not before men, but before God, find whether the good tree is bringing forth good fruit then you will not be judged. And that brings us to our third point. If you are connected to the good tree, look, you will bring forth good fruit. What comes out of a man is what is inside of a man. And this simple principle can guide every aspect of our lives, can't it? Young ladies, don't try to fool yourself into thinking that a man's tree is not like his fruit. How a man treats you now will not change when he marries you. If his fruit is bad, the tree that's coming from it is bad. 
What about politics? Don't try to fool yourself into thinking that a man's promises, when they contradict the fruit of how he lives his life, are worth anything more than the dirt on your shoes. How a man lives his life will not change when he enters office. His convictions will not change when he enters office. If his fruit is bad, then the tree that it's coming from is bad. Churches, don't try to fool yourself into thinking that your pastor, that his tree is not like his fruit. How your pastor acts at home will not be different from how he leads the church on Sunday. If his fruit is bad, then his tree is bad as well. This principle can guide our understanding of the world around us, but my desire is that we would look more introspectively. How is your fruit? What pops into your mind? What comes into your heart? What does come out of your mouth? What gets into your eyes? What do you pursue? What do you seek? What is the fruit that you produce telling you about the tree unto which it's connected? And let's put this into perspective, lest we undermine everything that we have already said. Pastor, you've been telling us that actions aren't enough, and now you're telling us we judge ourselves based upon our actions? No, not your actions, your fruit. Paul said this about fruit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, Uh, idolatry, witchcraft, excuse me, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The works of the flesh are listed here. And in continuity with what Jesus teaches us, we understand that these sins are not just sins when they become actions. They are sins in the heart before they become sins of the body. So if you envy someone in your heart, even if that envy never works itself out in action, the fruit of your heart is revealing a problem. You're not connected to the right tree. There's a problem with the tree because there's a problem with the fruit. So if you lust after a woman, even if that lust doesn't work itself out in action toward her, the fruit of your heart is revealing a problem in your heart. There's a problem with the tree because there's a problem with the fruit. On the other hand, Paul teaches in verses 22 and 23 of Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such There is no law. When you're connected to the good tree, Jesus says in John 15, if you abide in him and his words abide in you, then you will bring forth good fruit because you are connected to the right source. When you see, not only in your actions, but in your desires, these nine characteristics coming out of your Not just your actions. These nine characteristics in your heart, in your mind. When you, in your heart and mind, love that person. Not just that when they say something evil to you, you smile and say, I love you. But in your heart, you say, I love you. In your mind, you say, I love you. I forgive you. I'm going to pray for you. When that happens, you know that you're connected to the good tree. And you don't need to conjure this stuff up. This list of nine virtues is not, should not be on your to-do list. This should not be your to-do list. It should be your goal, but not your to-do list. This is stuff that will come naturally. Your to-do list is what we, what we read in, in verses 24 to 26 of Galatians 5. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, 
Let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Your to-do list is to crucify the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. If you do that, those seven, excuse me, those nine attributes of Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it's going to come out naturally. Love is going to come. Joy is going to come. Peace is going to come. Long-suffering is going to come. It's going to be there. It's going to be in your heart. It's going to be in your actions. It's going to be in your mind. It's going to be in everything. It's going to fill you to the brim because you're connected to the good tree. So Jesus says in John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine. Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. One final point. If Jesus is Lord, obey him. Jesus asks in Luke 6.46, Why call ye me Lord and do not the things that I say. Jesus said in Luke 6, 48 and 49, the man who hears and obeys is a man whose house is built upon a rock and it will stand in the day of trial. But the man who hears and does not obey is like the man whose house is built upon the sand. It will wash out. He will not stand strong. May I put it to you in the way James does in James 1, to 25? But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a doer of the word, excuse me, be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Let us not fail to understand that we are not commended by God simply for sitting here and listening to what the Bible says or for going home and waking up early and reading our Bible in the morning. The blessed man is the man who pleases God is not the man who hears. It is the man who obeys. This is the final thought in our little three-sermon journey from spirit-mindedness to Christ-likeness. I've given you a trainload of words today which really could be summed up just like this. God loves you enough that He sent His Son, His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that He could reconcile you back to Himself and so that you and I could have a thriving, personal relationship with Him. Once we have that relationship, we are adopted into the family of God and we are made His child. It is then our responsibility as God's people to change our mindset to see the world the way God sees the world, to see success the way God sees success, to structure our lives around the privilege of pleasing God, not pleasing man, of doing things God's way, not doing things our way. And we have every advantage in doing this, namely because we have within us the very spirit of the living God. Because God has given to us in His redemptive work through His Son a template for pleasing Him. If you want to please the Father, you won't know what you should do? Be exactly like His Son. You want to please the Father? 
be exactly like his son. Jesus Christ pleased God to the fullest extent possible. And the more you are like Christ, the more you please God. And this works out great for us. Because as I mentioned, Romans 8-9 tells us that we have the spirit of Christ within us. Which means all we need to do is to obey Christ. Is submit ourselves to his spirit. His Spirit will work in us His character and we will be like Christ and we will please the Father. But this doesn't work until Jesus is not just your Savior, but He is also your Lord. Until you hold Him in high enough esteem to actually obey Him. Let's close in prayer.